Well, take your Bibles and open up to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, as we continue our study in the Beatitudes, Matthew, chapter 5. We're just going to be covering verse 9 this morning, where Jesus teaches, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. I would imagine that some of you are familiar with the life of John Bunyan. John Bunyan is the author of the famous book Pilgrim's Progress, written back in the 1600s. And apart from the Bible itself, Pilgrim's Progress was the book that sold the most copies in the United States ever since then. Extremely popular. Children read it. Everybody read it. It's an allegory of a man named Christian who comes to Jesus Christ, comes to faith in Christ, and then lives a life of great struggle and trial and eventually crosses the Golden River and makes it to the Celestial City. And all of it is an allegory. Much of it conceived in John Bunyan's mind when he was imprisoned. He was imprisoned multiple times for preaching the gospel back in that day The Church of England had decreed that you can only preach in a Church of England church if you're approved by the Church of England. Everybody else had to simply stop doing it. And so there were even times when John Bunyan would preach in the woods and people would come hear him on the Lord's Day and gather in the woods. So that's John Bunyan. And if you do know him and if you've read Pilgrim's Progress, if you haven't, I highly recommend it to you. Uh, It's a very good book for helping you to understand what it is to live a Christian life uh, with all the weaknesses and stresses and difficulties and ups and downs that go on with it. And so even if you do know the life of John Bunyan, how many of you know how he died? I'm guessing not too many. Am I right? Well, this year that he died was 1688. He was 60 years old. His health was broken. He had lived in prison off and on and uh, prisons back then were not like what they had today. They didn't really have their choice of what television station to watch when they were in prison. They were cold, damp, dark. Uh, the prison was Newgate Prison. There's a Newgate Prison up where we live in Granby, uh, Connecticut, taken after that, where they held all their prisoners underground, damp. And if you lived in any of those prisons for any length of time, your health would eventually become broken. Uh, it's kinds of sicknesses and eventually diseases would come to you. Now, John Bunyan, by this time, he's out of prison. He's very well known. He's a fantastic preacher, but his health is broken. And he had just recovered from what was called back then the sweating sickness, similar to what we would call today cholera, in which he had suffered complete fatigue, complete bodily weakness. But his long-suffering wife, who had taken care of the children when John would often be in prison for preaching the gospel, had taken care of him and had nursed him back almost to full strength. While he was in recovery, a young man came to him and asked him if he would become a peacemaker. Several towns away, an old man lay dying. The old man was the father of this young man, and he was very angry with his son, He had threatened to disinherit this son from his estate. John Bunyan, upon hearing this and realizing that time was short, in order to prevent the double mischief of a father dying in anger with his son, 
and the evil consequence of a child being cut off from his living, ventured off in his weak and still somewhat sick condition, as his biographer wrote, quote, on his accustomed work to win the blessings of the peacemaker. He made the journey to this man on horseback, which in and of itself requires some good physical exertion, and he was rewarded with success. The old man truly and remorsefully repented, sorrowfully repented over the hardness of his heart. Bunyan, returning home on horseback, was overtaken in a great rainstorm. And so in a, in a depleted and cold and exhausted state, he ended up taking refuge in the house of a friend along the way. While he was there, he was seized with a high fever, he had a stroke, and he died. His last words were, Take me, for I come to thee. This was John Bunyan, one of God's great men. I love the words of his biographer who wrote this, quote, Then was joy among the angels while they welcomed the hero of such spiritual flights and conducted his wandering soul to the new Jerusalem, which he had so beautifully described as the holy city, and then his wonder and amazement to find how infinitely short his description came to the blissful reality. John Bunyan, in life a peacemaker, now in heaven called a son of God in fulfillment to Matthew 5, 9. See, the peacemaker is somebody who has already been greatly influenced by the previous teaching of the Lord Jesus in verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart. You might remember from last week when we looked at the pure in heart, that's a person who is single in heart, has one God and one God only, not two gods, not three gods, not five gods, not a hundred gods. One God and all that he says and all that he is, is for me God. Everything that he is and everything that he commands, everything that he wants is the single desire of my heart. And every time I fail and fall short of that, I repent and I go back. He is my God. The pure in heart person then only knows one God. And therefore, let me make this application very quickly. He or she who fits verse 8, the pure in heart, the single of heart person, knows that the goal of living is not to get personal peace. The goal of living is to serve God. Or you could put it a different way. He knows, she knows that the goal of living is not to have control over my life in order that I can orchestrate my life so that I have peace in the way that I want it. That is not what it is to be pure in heart. That's to be selfish. In reality, the peacemaker is the person who is in constant warfare with indwelling sin, with the devil, with the world. This is not necessarily a life of of some kind of always in a state of emotional blissful peace. The peacemaker knows that his own sins are forgiven by divine mercy And based on verse 7, knows, therefore, that he must be merciful to all in his disposition. This is the heart of what makes a person to want only God and what 
creates out of that merciful heart the desire to just serve God alone because I see within me so many ways that I would love to serve myself. But I can't be that. I have to serve God. And if I'm going to serve God, then there can be no other gods that I bow down to and serve. And if I'm going to serve God, then I have to be a peacemaker. And I cannot demand control in my life. I cannot control my spiritual life. I cannot control my circumstances. I cannot control other people. I can't control my spouse. I can't control my kids. I can't control anything. And so that allows for the soul to take rest from taking on itself a mantle and responsibility for which it was never designed. And I will serve God who has control over all those things. Now, in all these weeks that we've been looking at these Beatitudes, we've divided each one into three separate sections. We'll do the same this morning. First, we're going to look at the condition, the condition. And you might remember from weeks gone by, the condition is really the first two words of the Beatitude. Look there with me. Blessed are. Blessed are. The word is makarios for blessed. Now, in the Greek world of that day... The world, the word blessed meant that you were free from daily cares. You were blissfully free. You hadn't a care in the world. The idea would be that you're set for life. It would kind of be the idea that the lottery wants to present to you on television, that if you win the lottery, you're set, dude. Then you're blessed. How blessed are those who win the lottery, right? You ever follow that up with like reading the articles about what happens to people's lives that win the lottery? And of course, we all say, well, that would never happen to me. <laughs> but that would be the idea in the, in the kind of the Gentile world that Jesus and the apostles lived in. If you're blessed, you're set for life. You've got personal servants. You've got enough wealth to certainly take care of you and your children for life. You haven't to care in the world. That was the idea. Light. Almost frivolous, a a devil-may-care attitude. And so the idea that blessed the Gentiles were taught as actually the condition of the gods, of the deities. And they could bestow this blessed life. Kind of if you did and said the right kind of things, the gods would smile upon you and make you to be a blessed person. But listen, in all those kind of reconstructions... The blessed life was something that you attained to. And once you attained to it, once you did what was necessary to become the blessed person, then you were essentially better off than everybody else, and everybody else would look at you and go, wow, what a blessed person. The gods have blessed him. So it was something that you attained. But Jesus did not teach that you attain to the state of the blessed as if God would smile down on you based on how sincere you were or based upon how pure you made your heart, on how poor in spirit you were. If you could only drum up enough discipline and enough sincerity to attain to these things, God himself would bless you. No, Jesus does not teach that. Look again at the first two words. They are not talking about something you attain to. They are talking about a condition that already exists. Blessed are. 
And every single one of these Beatitudes starts the same way. As I've said to you before, these are not prescriptions, they are descriptions of somebody who is already in this condition. And here's the element. The one who is blessed is the one who has blessing conferred upon him by God. God. We talked a few weeks back about how this particular word has the idea of a third-party blessing. When I was in sales, we used to use third-party testimonies. So I would, uh, you'll see commercials do this all the time. You have somebody in a, in a commercial tell you how great the product is or what the particular service did for them. Uh, we would use this in the selling cycle where you want to get before somebody and you want to tell them how great a company has benefited by your product or how John or Susie Smith has benefited because they use a service that you had. Third-party testimony. Well, that, it's kind of the idea here. You'll see that a lot. You'll see endorsements, especially in our culture, celebrity endorsements is almost a guaranteed way to make a lot of money off your product. If a celebrity says it's good, well, it's got to be good, right? And, and, and so that's kind of the idea here is that blessed is the third-party testimonial. Blessed is, is, is others looking at the blessed person and calling that person blessed. But in the Beatitudes, there's a difference. And the difference is this. The third party who confers blessing and calls someone blessed, decrees their condition as blessed, is not other people, but God. And therefore, it's profound. It's rich, it's permanent, it actually has a depth of meaning. In fact, the truth of the matter is, is that as you go through most of these Beatitudes, most people, upon looking at someone who is poor in spirit, who mourns, is not going to look at that person and say, wow, that's a blessed person. They're more likely to take pity upon that person. But God himself is the one who declares such a person blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the Those who mourn, blessed are the meek. God himself decrees that. Another way of seeing this is to look again at the beatitude, if you would, and to realize that none of these are present tense beatitudes. It's never blessed shall be the peacemakers. Blessed shall be pure at heart. It's always present tense. It's the blessed are. It's a condition of now. So if we agree with this, that the Beatitudes are not prescriptions to gain the favor of the gods out there, if you become this kind of religious person, then here's the kind of blessing you can hope for if we can strip that out and realize that these are descriptions and ascriptions that come from the Almighty Himself upon a person who is this way, then maybe we can come to understand some of the richness of these things and realize that these are, these are written in this way, spoken in this way, in order to, for you and me to have our hearts drawn to acceptance of them. To want to be this kind of person, not out of selfish motivation, but because they describe a life that can be had on earth that God himself calls blessed. And when your heart loves the Lord and wants to serve the Lord, then that's really what you want. You want his smile upon you. You want him to ascribe to you, to to tell you the condition from his perspective of the kind of life that you're living, even if all men frown upon you. You want God's smile, don't you? Ultimately, 
for men or go one way and another way, but God himself is so steady and certain and secure. So these are not prescriptions in order to get you to gain the favor of God. They are conditions conferred upon someone by God and experienced in the here and now. But then that raises a question for us. And we'll, we'll move on to the next section, the promise section. The promise is at the end of verse 9. Look there. For they shall be called the sons of God. Now that is future tense. And that's the promise. They shall be called sons of God. Who in the future is going to call the peacemakers sons of God? Who's going to call them that? Well, as with all the other Beatitudes that we've looked at, because the word they is put in the emphatic position in the Greek, the meaning of the verse is really for they and they alone shall be called the sons of God. Therefore, it's talking about a specific group of people. And the fact is that not many Christians become peacemakers. Yet the Bible is very clear that everyone who trusts in the gospel is called a son of God. Is Jesus here teaching something more? Is this going against what we've already been talking about? Now you do have to attain to some level in order to be called a a son of God? Do we have to prove ourselves? Peacemakers before we can be called sons of God? No. Actually, both are true. Galatians 3.26 says this, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. That's the elementary result of the gospel. As a result of trusting in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as the full payment for your sin and guarantee of eternal life based on God's promise. I'll even put it this way, based on God's naked promise. Just the promise and the promise alone, in other words. You become a child of God. John 1.12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Every single person. This is declared over and over again through scripture. Everyone who believes the gospel is called a son of God. But there is also yet another declaration yet to come. You might remember at the end of verse 8, we talked about seeing God last week. As the future, as seeing God in resurrection. There is a future element then as Jesus goes into verse 9 when he says, They shall be called the sons of God. This is therefore a declaration that will be had in heaven from God himself, declaring that certain ones are in this particular condition the sons of God. How do we explain this then? Well, sometimes... In scripture, even as in life, the word son has the meaning of the ideal representative. Okay? We would talk about somebody being a true son of the United States. That would be somebody who is a hero. Somebody who embodied the noblest and most virtuous character that we esteem in our nation. We could talk about somebody being a son of the military. Somebody who embodies the values and qualities that make someone to be the preeminent individual representing the military. We can even call someone a son of the church, a particular individual, maybe in, in a Catholic church. There would be a, what, that would mean one thing in a Catholic church, the ideal representative of a Catholic church, an Anglican church, a Presbyterian church, go on down the road. 
The idea would be the word son has to do with the concept of being the ideal representative. We have this in Scripture. Remember the angel Gabriel? He comes to the Virgin Mary. He comes to her and says a number of statements to her about the one who is going to be born, that he is going to implant in her. One of the things he says to Mary is that he shall be called the Son of the Most High. The idea is that he will be the ideal representative of God. When when Gabriel says he shall be called the Son of the Most High, it's not like he wasn't already son. He had been God's son from all eternity. But Jesus will also attain to a sonship on earth through his virtuous life and ministry, proving that he was God's ideal representative. That would be the idea, then, of him being the Son of the Most High. He is the visible, ideal representative, showing forth the most virtuous attributes of the one of whom he is being predicated, in this case, the Son of the Most High God. So when you see Jesus, you are seeing the Most High God. That would be the idea. (coughs) Everything about Jesus would perfectly represent God. So now we can understand the promise here at the end of verse 9 is a conferral of praise from God upon those who are peacemakers. They shall be called sons of God in this way, that they during their lifetime were the ideal representative of what God himself is and who he is and what he is doing among those who are in opposition to him and live in opposition to him. How does God deal with men? He certainly deals with them with mercy. But in order to bring them to himself so that they exist in a condition of peace, he confronts them, does he not? With the truth. The truth about rebellion against God. Truth against sin. Therefore, the peacemaker is going to be like God in this world. His objective is to bring peace in the same way that God himself brings peace. And therefore, God himself, according to this promise, will give these people a special moniker that will last throughout eternity. They will be called sons of God in a manner of being peacemakers. And it is an honor that will last for all eternity. And one last point, kind of calling along that same line. If, if God shall one day call you a peacemaker, a son of God in eternity, you being a representative of his on earth pursuing peace, then who else will call you that? Well, for all eternity, all of God's children will call you that. All the angels, all the redeemed angels will call you that as well. All angelic hosts, all human hosts, all throughout eternity will know you as a peacemaker because they will obviously agree with God. Marvelous is this promise. There is then an understanding by which we who are fallen in Adam can be like God in this world, being a peacemaker, 
So that makes it critical that we come to have a solid understanding of what it means and what it doesn't mean to be a peacemaker. Because if we're confused on this point, then the chances are we're not going to be a peacemaker. We're going to have a faulty idea of what it means. We want to, we want to get very clear on what it is, so we need to talk for a little bit about what it isn't. And let's move on to the third point, the group. Who is with the group? What is the group? The group is the peacemakers. Notice it is plural. These are a group of people who are going to live during the present age. They are going to make peace. They probably will not be well known. They will probably be hidden, maybe even despised, but they will be peacemakers always striving to make peace. Now, there's a lot of misinformation on these people. So I think what we should do in order to kind of get a handle on what's behind Jesus' idea of peacemakers is I'd like you to maybe hold your finger here, but go forward a few pages to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, and make your way there. I would just say, too, that Jesus has been called the world's greatest promoter of nonviolence. You maybe heard that. It sounds good at first. But Jesus said to his disciples when he was sending them out to the towns and cities of Israel to go preach, Look at verse 34 in Matthew 10. He tells them, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. And that in and of itself ought to just put to rest a lot of misinformation, but sadly it doesn't. Notice what he continues to say. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. It's a metaphorical sword. As he goes on, he describes what's going to be divided. Look at verse 35. I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. This isn't very sentimental. This isn't. This would not make a good Hallmark movie here. Verse 37. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy in me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Wow. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. These are... Such clearly dividing words. You can understand then that that what Christ is going to do is he is going to demand he be supreme in your life. More supreme than your wife, than your husband, than your precious child, than anyone, even mom and dad. If anyone ever tries to hinder you from following Christ, you must hate them in this sense, turning away from them, leaving them, and following Christ. You cannot serve two gods. You can only serve Jesus Christ. I tell you this, children, I tell you this, older folks, you cannot have multiple gods. You shall only have one God. And Jesus' words couldn't be clearer that he did not come to bring peace on the earth. The fact is, is that the gospel and the entailments of the gospel, a life of obedience to Christ, will bring great division even within families. Now, if you would, you can go back to Matthew 5. 
So peacemakers are not going to be people who are necessarily going to be applauded by the world. And if you thought they were, then how do you explain Matthew 5.10? Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. In other words, right after Jesus finishes talking about peacemakers, he talks about those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. God's peace came by a cross by which he had to slay his own son, And Jesus gave up control of his own life and made it a sin offering. There was nothing lovey-dovey or sentimental about any of this peacemaking that he went through. It came at the cost of life itself for us to have peace with God. So we have to talk about what what peacemakers are and are not. Frankly, a lot of times you'll hear peacemaking equated with pacifism. The United Nations, for example, they declare every September 21st to be International Peace Day. And one man wrote this in an article on International Peace Day for a website called Ethics Daily. Listen to what he writes. Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Given the fact that this statement appears in the list of what has been named the Beatitudes, those pithy sayings that stand as the most important ethical values Jesus lays out, peacemaking must surely be a core value and action for Jesus' followers. What is required to be peacemakers? Simply put, and without qualification, the kind of peacemaking Jesus commands requires nonviolent responses to evil. Really? Allegedly, Jesus taught pacifism. A number of years ago in the 1980s, uh, Hollywood and the world was all agog and awash over Gandhi. You might remember the great leader of India. He advocated a form of civil disobedience called nonviolence. And he and millions in India laid out in nonviolent ways and were frequently shot by the British occupying forces but when the reporters from Britain flashed it back in, the, in, the, in pictures and in articles in the British paper, the public went absolutely berserk. And within months, the British government pulled out of India in 1947, 48, 49, and handed it all over to India. The same thing with Martin Luther King. He observed what Gandhi had done in India, and he did the same thing down south. He advocated that the Southern Christian Leadership Conference adopt a perspective of nonviolence, and he won through his great force of character. He won, and he was able to get the vast numbers of them to accept that they would cross a bridge, for example, in Selma. And sure enough, what did the white policemen do? Certainly motivated by a mix of bigotry and fear, they shot and killed. You might remember little girls being killed in churches. You might remember all kinds of things. And, and Martin Luther King, keeping the people from lashing back but being nonviolent, taking a seat in the front of the bus, taking a seat at a lunch counter that was, quote, reserved for whites only. No blacks wanted. All these acts of nonviolence, when somebody would hit them, you fall to the floor and you cover up. All allegedly based on Jesus' teaching of Matthew 5.8, being peacemakers. I would just say this, that if Gandhi had tried to do what he did in India, in Russia, 
Or if Martin Luther King had tried to do what he did in the southern United States, in North Korea, they would have been mowed down mercilessly by the soldiers and been killed, all of them. In other words, when you are talking about Britain and the United States, you have cultures that have been so influenced by the gospel and the value of human life and the reality that that man is endowed with inalienable rights not by his government but by his creator. That therefore people are precious and they have a right to self-determination You don't have those rights in a lot of countries in the world. They don't think that way. And so the only reason why certain forms of nonviolence in this world have succeeded has been due to the kind of governments that they've been under that have been deeply influenced by gospel values. And I'm glad for that. But please don't think that you could go to Iran today and show nonviolent protests and somehow they're going to or China, and think that they're going to treat you or others the same way that we're treated here in the southern United States. So how then can we understand what's going on? Well, a lot of times, peacemaking is is kind of misunderstood. If you you look forward in the Sermon on the Mount, go to chapter 5 here, verse 39. Can you make your way there? Do you see verse 39? A lot of times, pacifists go to this verse. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. But they neglect to take into effect the context of what Jesus was saying. Yes, it's true that you don't want to resist an evil person, and when someone slaps you on the right cheek, you're to turn the other also. Does this mean, therefore, that if someone attacks my wife... And she's knocked down crying. I'm to stand her back up and turn the other cheek so that they can hit her again. I want you to go back to verse 38, please. Jesus here is talking about a misinterpretation of the Mosaic law. When he says here that you have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That verse was taken out of, ripped out of its Levitical context. And the idea was meant that if someone hurts you or someone hurts your kid... You have a right, an obligation almost, to go to them and give them the same injury that they gave to you or to your kid. Which was the exact opposite intent of Jesus, of God, giving that law to Moses. The reason that law was given to Moses was that the court of elders and Israelite judges were to determine eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. It was to keep you from personal vengeance. It was so twisted, misinterpreted that it became now like a carte blanche for personal vengeance. Yeah, well, God says eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. The whole purpose of giving the verse was to hinder you from lashing out in vengeance. And so this would inform us in verse 39 that this is a a vengeance situation. There's There's been a history here. And so they're, they're doing something evil to you. That's why he says, do not resist an evil person. This is somebody who wants to carry out a specific type of vengeance on you. And look at verse 40. Here you see all kinds of governmental authority. Verse 40, if someone wants to sue you, well, that requires a court, and take your shirt, let them have your coat also. That's fine. They go to court. They sue you, let them have your coat. Or if you want to just interrupt the process, say, hey, look, if you want my my shirt, 
not only my shirt, but here, have my coat. Now, for those of us who live in the modern day, we have closets, I understand. And you have, you have a coat for Tuesday and a coat for Wednesday and a coat for 30-degree weather and a coat for 50-degree weather, but not back in those days. You would have one coat. And you would even sleep in it. A poor person would even sleep in their coat. So it was a very valuable possession. That would be the idea. But you see the governmental effect. Jesus is saying, look, don't even, don't even just worry about that. <clears throat> look at verse 41. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with them too. This was the Roman occupying soldier who commands you to carry his kit for one mile. And Jesus says you go with them too. Both of those are governmental effects on them. You can see the context here of unjust governmental dealings and unjust personal dealings. All of that colors then a very specific situation when Jesus says in verse 39, I say to you, do not resist an evil person. All that, it's not talking about someone all of a sudden in a drunken stupor attacking your house or someone just all of a sudden coming against you to take away what you have like a robber in the middle of the night or Someone begging you for money on a street corner. Men, if a man assaults your wife, do not turn the other cheek. You protect her. You should die for her protection if necessary, because that is the example of Christ for his bride. The same thing for your children. Defend and protect them. Don't go nonviolent in this way. Don't carry out personal vengeance, which is the goal of Jesus' teaching here, but rather hinder that person from doing anything further, and where need be, use governmental force to do that. Don't be vengeful people, is really the heart of what Jesus is teaching here. The best time to turn the other cheek is when someone assaults you, but not just any assault, but is mistreating you because you are following the ethical teachings of Jesus Christ. And so you, when someone slaps you on the face or mistreats you or fires you or humiliates you in front of others, receive it as if it was being done to your Lord. For all you're trying to do is to follow him. And if you will be a peacemaker, there will be many opportunities in your life for you to suffer in the manner in which he suffered. Then there's also the idea, and this is pretty common too, that peacemaking is really trying to figure out how to make world peace. In other words, Jesus wanted world peace. Of course, when you hear that, I, and I hear that, I, I think, well, then Jesus was a great failure. Because if there's one thing there isn't, is world peace. So, if that's what he meant when he said, blessed are the peacemakers, he was, he was you know, talking about unicorns and flying teddy bears because there's no reality to that. In fact, since World War II alone, there have been 70 wars and there have been 200 international outbreaks of violence. The historical atlas of the 20th century, published in 2010, says that the number of deaths during the 1900s by war and oppression was 203 million, or in other words, one out of 27 persons who lived last century was killed by war and oppression. So there is no peace going on in this world. The idea would be that Jesus wanted the peacemakers to be the mediators, the negotiators, 
to try to get two factions to agree to terms, kind of like Israel and Palestine, if you could just get them to agree on peace. But this beatitude has nothing to do whatsoever with arbitration, negotiation, mediation, truces, or treaties. In order to show you that, I'd like you to hold your finger here and go to the book of James, just past the book of Hebrews. James chapter 3 with me, please. James chapter 3. The kind of peace that is being spoken of by the Lord has nothing to do with a negotiated settlement, but is a righteousness that results in justice. True peace requires conflict be confronted with truth alongside the trust that God will bless during that time. And the motivation of being a peacemaker is God's glory and doing what brings honor to him. And the tool of crafting peace is righteousness. Look at the end of the chapter here, James chapter 3. The wisdom that comes from above is first pure, then peaceable. Gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits. So the wisdom that comes from God is pure, single-minded, clean. It's then peaceable. It's gentle, meek. It's reasonable. It's full of mercy. It's without hypocrisy. And here's where James gets into the tool that creates peace. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. In other words, if you want the flower of peace, you must first sow seeds of righteousness, not compromise. If you want the flower of peace, you must sow seeds of righteousness, not compromise. Of course, Jesus taught this. He used salt as a metaphor for godly confrontation. You know salt. You ever get salt in a wound? It stings crazy bad at first. It's so painful, but then it cleanses. It's been used as a disinfectant for centuries. Jesus said this in Mark chapter 9. Salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. The idea there being that if you have salt within yourselves, you will use it as a disinfectant with each other and you will have godly confrontation with each other in order that you can have peace with one another. You can go back to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. The Old Testament even advocates this. Psalm 85.10, righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Isaiah 32.17, the work of righteousness will be peace. See, two parties in conflict cannot be in peace until they recognize which of their own attitudes and actions broke God's law. And then after they realize and they are aware of which of their attitudes and actions have broken God's law, then broken, humbly, ask God for cleansing and ask the offended party for forgiveness. But you can't make anyone come to peace. Romans 12.18 says, If possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. So far as it depends upon you, the apostle teaches. Hebrews 12.14, Pursue peace with all men. You can't force anyone to be at peace with you. I've been trying for two years to make peace with some men. 
I've asked four pastors from two countries and three churches to make peace with these men. And I've had no success at all with these men who are elders, leaders in a church. They won't talk to these men. They won't meet with these men. They won't answer their letters from these men. These Christians are about as interested in peace as a mouse is as in attending a cat convention. You can't force peace. All you can do is take steps in righteousness in order to sow peace whose fruit you hope will be righteousness. Listen, when a situation demands righteousness, Christ's name is being trashed, someone is being unjustly treated, then, beloved, be a peacemaker. Everybody wants peace, but peace without righteousness is what the Bible calls false peace. It's what the false prophets of the Old Testament always cried out, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Peace without righteousness is actually sin in God's eyes. A lot of men want to have this kind of peace in the home. What they really want in life is to have a peaceful home with their wife and kids. But they don't want a peace with righteousness unless righteousness be redefined to be self-righteousness. Kind of like the little kid who is asked by the game show host, well, what is it that you want in life? Well, I just want a wife who's going to Watch TV with me and serve me chips and salsa. I just want peace in life, right? So many men. So many men are deathly afraid that if they do confront sin in the home, that they will lose peace in the home. And they're probably right. They're probably right that if they actually do hold their wives and themselves to God's standard of righteousness, whatever peace they have at that time in the home will be shattered. So not wanting God's peace based on righteousness, they settle for a false peace, which is so fragile, like glass, like thin glass, and you're always kind of, to change the metaphor, walking on eggshells in the home. There's no peace, there's no joy, there's no comfort, there's no righteousness. Christ is not exalted in the home. And what you find out is that you really are an idolater. Oh, you say you love God, but what you really love is a God named peace. The peace Jesus speaks of is a peace that comes through the instrumentality of righteousness. Like we read earlier in verse 10, those who have blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. That's the typical fruit of being a peacemaker. But it's good peace. It's righteous peace. It's not false peace. Men, women, what would you rather have where you live in your home? A false peace or a peace that honors Jesus Christ? A peace whereby you may have to repent of 10,000 things and your wife of three. Or flip it around. Wives, you have to repent of 10,000 things and your husband of three. 
You can't get your pound of flesh. And all the angers and frustrations in life must be confessed. As all I've really wanted is control. That's what I really wanted in my home. If I can control my home to run the way I want it, then I will have peace. And all these Christians bowing down at these Baal altars of peace. False deities. And so God, who is faithful and loving and just, always brings situations into your life so that that false peace is always like the perpetual apple cart being upset. And there's no real peace. And you're too scared, maybe, and you don't have the faith to trust that if I will do what God wants, that he will establish a lasting peace. And so shakily, unfaithfully, unloyally, refuse to actually be God's man or God's woman in that home. So I call you this morning to change. I call you to have one God and one God only. If you do, if you are a peacemaker in the way that this verse talks about, then you shall be called sons of God forever. Having said that, let me just wrap it up with a couple of extremes before we go to the Lord's table together. There are two extremes we should all avoid in this. One is that we don't at all pursue peace where sin exists. We don't at all pursue it. We're too scared. We're afraid of what the consequences will be. Or the other alternative is confronting every single sin in everybody else as if it is a death cage match. You know, it's a death fight. Those would be the two extremes. But both of those extremes have the same common error of source. I must control. Release that. Don't be, I must have peace. Be, I must have God. In my home, in my life, everywhere. Because the pure heart only has one God, right? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, then we want to seek your holy face and ask that we could all be peacemakers. It isn't beyond the grasp of any of us. It is merely the result of being pure in heart. And the desire to seek your honor and glory through righteousness in relationships with other fallen men and women in this world. As we prepare our heart now to take the Lord's Supper, how important it is that we ask ourselves the question, is there anyone in the body of Christ with whom we have argument with, disagreement with, are not pursuing peace with, Is there anybody for whom I hold grudge against and am unwilling to attempt to make righteousness in order that there may be a God-glorifying peace? Oh, if there is, Father, I pray that you would work in our hearts that by the taking of this bread and of this cup, by the enjoining of ourselves and remembrance to your own holy sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, that we would love others as he loves his own, and we would forego our pride and our status and be the servant and the humble, meek one going lower than all others to seek peace in order that your name be honored and exalted. 
in order that one day we could hear very humbly the appellation Son of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Gentlemen.